my name is Paul Whitney. I'm the City Librarian for Vancouver, and it is my pleasure to introduce the last uh, session for this afternoon. And I think we were, we were agreeing we could say now for something completely different. Um, we're going to hear from Dr. Jane Anderson, and her topic is Access and Control of Indigenous Knowledge in Libraries and Archives. Uh, Dr. Anderson is a research fellow with the Smithsonian and also is affiliated as a fellow with the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. IATSIS? IATSIS. Um, we have a, a reactor panel of two. Um, I would like to, to welcome back John Band, a lawyer advocate who we uh, heard from earlier, and also Harold von Humkrom, who works with the State and University Library in Denmark, and Harold also is a member of the IFLA Copyright and Other Legal Matters Committee. Uh, I think that uh, one might be inclined to suggest a subtitle for this paper may be, if you, think, if you thought things were complicated before, just wait. Right? Here we go. So, Jane, over to you. So, thanks for... Um staying in for the, for the long haul. It's um, been a long day and it's full of complexities. Um, I'd just like to thank the organisers to begin with, Carrie and Jim and Jody for all the organisation. It's been great. Thank you. Um, what I wanted to do, I get, and I guess you could say that this is a kind of an Australian story as opposed to an American story. What I wanted to do, though, before situating the Australian into um, this broader context is to actually go back to some of the comments that have been made by Peter and by Rebecca and actually also by, um, by Fred as well. So Peter talked about how um, we need to also consider the, the cultural contingency of the terms in which we're using, so the, the cultural contingency of the terms like fair use or public domain, and who is the public domain, uh, or who is the public, whose public is it? Um, and in a context, in an Indigenous context in Australia, these are really important issues because the Indigenous public well, there, is no, there has been a very limited um, time in which Indigenous people have become, in, have entered into this new public, and that has created all these different tensions. So then Rebecca raised the question um, about whose interests were the book, was the book designed, and the point about whose language the Bible was historically rendered um, says a lot about technologies of power. And this question has particular resonance in the context of Indigenous cultural materials. Um, for example, who were the recording and documentation of Indigenous people's lives and culture for? Who benefited from these recordings? Were the documents made for Indigenous people? And if they weren't originally, does this affect the new Indigenous users? Then Fred raised a pertinent point about thinking about the problem of users that haven't been thought of yet. And I wonder then if Indigenous users' needs easily, can easily be mapped out onto those user groups we've historically understood and responded to. And then Kenny talked about the messiness of reality <laughs> and the need to consider certain problems away from legalistic rationalism of meaning and interpretations. How can we fit the pieces together when they're always already messy and in many instances contradictory? How can we account for the inherent politics of claims of ownership claims of control, Indigenous or non-Indigenous. So the paper that I've provided has been kind of a, to sketch a particular problematic that is very live in Australia at the moment. Um, my work more generally is uh, about understanding the social relations of law. 
and the project of kind of post-colonial reconciliation through legal re redefinition and recategorization of Indigenous subjects. And then, of course, how these issues play out practically. So, in the paper, I began by tracing the emergence of Indigenous interests in intellectual property. And this moment is actually quite... You, you can locate it, um, both internationally but also within an Australian context. So in 1976, the Tunis Law on Copyright in Developing Countries raised the spectre of folklore. And this was initially the term that, was caught, that caught Indigenous cultural expressions. So in terms of how the international started dealing with Indigenous interests in 1976, this started to then play out within an Australian context. And in 1981, the Australian government responding to the international um, focus on folklore also, uh, and also responding to Indigenous artists' needs in terms of the appropriation of art onto tea towels and onto tablecloths, kind of thought that it would d develop some kind of bureaucratic response to Indigenous interests. And it did this in 1981, and it created a working party on folklore. And part of the, uh, the outcome of this particular working party was the decision that there needed to be a special set of legislation for Indigenous interests that Indigenous interests could not be mapped onto standard copyright interests and that th this was produced through particular uh, constructions of Indigenous people to start with in terms of uh, reading that uh, Indigenous people were not authors. They could not be individual, recognised within a copyright regime as um, individuals. They were communal. Um, and that their work was timeless and there was no original component that could be mapped onto this Indigenous product. The report is fascinating for several reasons. One of those is that it is the first bureaucratic response to deal with these issues. And the other reason why is it because it illustrates the tension that exists in this field um, at the moment. And that's this tension between what is the purpose of developing strategies for Indigenous knowledge. Is it to protect some traditional component of Indigenous knowledge or is it to protect the economic potential that Indigenous knowledge has within marketplace of relations? And this tension is noted in 1981 and it hasn't gone away. It's still there. So given the extent that in Australia copyright was not seen as a solution for these problems of the appropriation of Indigenous art, it's surprising that in 1985 there is a copyright case that finds that there was an infringement of Aboriginal art in the Northern Territory. But you won't find any anybody writing about this particular case. It kind of slipped under the guard. People are still focusing on folklore. They're not focusing on copyright. They cannot see that copyright might be useful here. So despite the first case and the, 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 um, it demonstrating that copyright could work in certain instances for Indigenous people, in 1989 another case occurs and that kind of shifts the agenda totally and people start focusing on copyright as, being, uh, as providing a, a particular tool of leverage that Indigenous people might be able to use and to gain some recognisable benefit from. And Australia has been um, quite influential in the international domain about how um, Indigenous rights have been read into um, a, a space about Indigenous rights and intellectual property. And if you look at the way in which WIPO talks about these, these, this very huge field Australia sits as a, an example that's provided a certain legitimacy to the approach. It kind of authorises the way in which we can think of copyright as providing certain solutions in certain circumstances. 
So in, um, so in Australia, the, the focus has predominantly been on copyright and Aboriginal art. And more recently, it's been on biopiracy and patents and benefit sharing and genetic resources. Though I'm not clear from my experience working in communities about whose agenda is being advanced in that particular space. Because the communities that I work in, their real questions are not about biopiracy and patents. It's actually about cultural materials. And it's about where those materials are, how you can get access to them, how you can control them, and then how you can reuse them and reimagine them into all these different spaces. So I find it fascinating that the issues of cultural materials have been um, noticeably absent from an Australian space, but also an international space. And I think on page one or two, of, of three actually, of the paper, I tell you how many, um, the, the extent of the collection that exists in my institution in Australia. And it's worth repeating because it's quite substantial. It's 650,000 pictorial images, 300,000 hours of recorded film, half a million feet of film footage, 15,000 hours of film soundtrack, 5,000 video titles, 750 works of art, and the largest comprehensive collection of print materials. Now, IATSIS is just one organisation in Australia. It does have the largest collection, but very, uh, most of the cultural institutions across Australia have sizeable collections. And people don't really know what to do about it because the irony is that Indigenous people have been so well documented and so over-anthropologised that all that material is not owned by Indigenous people. It's owned by the researchers who recorded it over a period of 150 years. And it's still going on. Indigenous people are still being recorded in all these different ways. And whilst there is, has been a change in how Indigenous people are asserting their rights into these new recording projects, it's still not clear the ownership that they can assert over that material, especially when they do want to use it within their communities and put it on the web and cut and mix and burn it all and create something new. So, um, and I think that's, it, it's, it's really interesting to think about um, you know, intellectual property, knowledge and property and power and what these questions mean. And in a space um, like archives and libraries that have historically been, um, they're not ahistorical spaces. They've been constituted by social, political, cultural um, processes that create the space itself but also create the ways in which material is deposited within those spaces. And, I mean, Derrida did a fantastic um, etymology of the term archive years ago that looked at the, it, its derivation from Greek. And the way in which authority is invested within archives and libraries is kind of an important issue within these spaces if you think about the people who can't have access to those spaces. But they hold this material that they want to make meaning out of. So how did the libraries and archives in Australia start to change in terms of their attitude to Indigenous people and in terms of dealing with the cultural materials that exist in these spaces? And this change is really recent. In the 1990s at my institution, which is an Indigenous organisation, so this change is quite dramatic, Indigenous users constituted 1% of the clientele. Now it's 75%. And so in 
15 years, you've seen this dramatic increase in how Indigenous people are coming to the archive and the library, and therefore how the library has to respond has kind of created the, all these different tensions. Some of the reasons why, and of course, these issues are inherently political. They are, they are always already invested in politics, especially in an Australian context of Indigenous rights. So the three, the three kind of changes that you can locate as um, how, how the archives changed in terms of developing this new Indigenous public um, is through land rights and native title. Because, of course, in land rights and native title, the legislation in Australia demands that you prove continuity to land. And the continuity to land is in the anthropologists' recordings of Indigenous people. And so Indigenous people themselves come to the archives to find that material that justifies their existence within the court of law for native title. At the same time, people who would like to argue that Indigenous people don't have that association to that particular land also come to the archive to find the piece of evidence that suggests that they don't have that continuity. Another change that occurred um, in terms of how Indigenous people started coming to the archive was in terms of the stolen generations in Australia. And um, again, incredibly political, incredibly personal, incredibly em emotive issues. Um, people trying to find their family members and trying to find records of family lines and where people moved from and where they came to. And in these processes, um, it's become clear that there's a lot of material that's recorded that is not, um, that raises politics about who can speak for it and who can access it. And in many Indigenous communities, there are a range of restrictions in terms of what kind of material can be accessed. There can be gender restrictions, age restrictions, secret sacred material. And these raise really difficult questions about public domain, especially if that material is already in the public domain. And Indigenous people come in and say, that shouldn't be there. That shouldn't be openly accessible to all. This has these levels of restrictions on it. And how do libraries and archives function when that kind of challenges the very rationality of it being within that space to start with? So because Indigenous people tend to not have any legal rights in relation to this material, institutions tend to have to look to other, 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 other avenues and to kind of develop some ethical ways of dealing with these issues. The way in which they've become contested claims and contested claims over ownership are in processes of repatriation, um, in terms of communities developing their own knowledge centres, their own libraries, their own uh, cultural centres. They often want all the material back. Um, and that, again, places all these dilemmas for libraries and archives in terms of not only do you provide the original back or do you how do you negotiate with the actual owner, the copyright owner of that material, um, or how, how, how many reproductions can you make <laughs> to provide back to the community? Um, so with the development of knowledge centres, and knowledge centres are a, a kind of more recent phenomenon in Australia and they are digitally based. They are not about um, repatriating tangible, um, yeah, the, the kind of tangible form. They want the digital form. And that's, there's a, they've been established through the Northern Territory Library Services in Northern Australia. And they plan to develop 12 different knowledge centres in 
Northern, Northern Territory, and then another 23 in, um, in Queensland. And the ways in which the library services in the Northern Territory have been dealing with the issues of copyright, um, the issues of reproduction, especially with digital technology and the complications that that inevitably creates, especially when the users, it's not clear what the, how the users would like to use that material to start with, how Indigenous people do want to reinterpret and create CD-ROMs and then put all this stuff on the web so that other people can feed back into that space. Um, it's very messy and people don't know how to behave in relation to it. So what we've been doing at IAPSIS, and, um, which probably has the, the biggest problems <laughs> because not only um, did IAPSIS in, in, in historically trying to deal with this material, we allowed uh, the owners of the material to assert certain contractual relations over the material itself. So we created these deposit forms that essentially acted as contracts that meant that the depositor could dictate the terms of reproduction and the terms of access. So whilst there might be, there's copyright rights, then we overlaid that with another degree of complexity in terms of the contractual obligations. So it's a real mess in there. And <laughs> it makes it really difficult to work with. <laughs> And what tends to happen is that there is no general rule. Indigenous cultural material is not all of one kind. It's made up of all these different elements. And there'll be ceremonial material, but there'll also be manuscripts by anthropologists that interpret the ceremony as well. And for the communities that I've been working with, they're not so interested in the manuscripts. They're really interested in the sound recordings, the videos, the films, and the photographs. And not only is that really interesting in terms of how copyright law has dealt with that subject matter to start with and that it's always kind of been a bit difficult because what is the original creative element in those, in those forms, but the immediacy of that material for Indigenous people is why people want it back. Because if you haven't seen a photograph of yourself ever, you kind of tend to have an attachment to the photograph and you do see that it's yours. Um, and it takes a lot of a lot of explaining into, I must say, like usually three different languages, that the ownership actually isn't yours and that what is copyright within an Indigenous community? How do you translate that? And it's very difficult. So with the Knowledge Centre that I've been working with in Galawinku, which is in the Northern Territory, um, we've been, and, you know, it, it's, the, it's a very remote community. Um, it runs the, the archive runs off a satellite. It gets booted up to Darwin, which is um, 400 kilometres away, and almost every day it goes down. So it's, it doesn't have any kind of continuity of, of working. So you've got all these other broader problems in Australia about access to technology and training and education and funding, and of course that all feeds into these problems. The archive, um, the Galawinku archive, it's been running for two years and when I got there I looked at what was actually in the archive and of course there's no cataloguing processes either. So there's thousands of photographs in this particular archive and none of them have names attached to them. Nobody knows who owns what, when it was recorded, when the photograph was made 
and that just creates an, an, another minefield. <laughs> and I kind of tend to go to the go go into the communities, and I get a headache and go, oh, <laughs> why is the road paved with all these problems? Why is it all copyright? <laughs> it's very frustrating. Anyway, so that what uh, we've been doing was, or what we decided to do, to alleviate some of these problems and to also create ways in which uh, Indigenous people can utilise copyright because it's not as if Indigenous people aren't making claims to property. They are. And they're making increasing claims to property. Property is a tool of leverage when you don't have much at all. Um, and one of the things that really characterises this field of Indigenous knowledge and intellectual property is the translation out of what Indigenous interests and needs might be, but very little capacity building back in to Indigenous communities so that they might be able to use it if they wanted to. So over an, an, an eight-week period in this community, we established what the points were that people wanted copyright to work upon. The relationships between the researchers and the community and the obligations that the community wanted to establish between the researchers and the community and how it would be possible to negotiate terms of ownership over photographs and over sound recordings and over films so that they stayed within the community as well. So that the Indigenous community, even though they didn't have any necessary legal rights, you could create these particular ways of creating obligations upon researchers that did leave material in communities and that did provide uh, space for Indigenous people to reinterpret that material as they chose. That they didn't always have to find the copyright owner to get the permission to then reuse the work. And of course, being in a remote community uh, that gets mail once a week, it's a bit tricky to find the copyright owner all the time. It's hard enough in a, at IATSIS to find the copyright owner, let alone in all these different communities. So what we've been, we've developed this, uh, and, in, in, and Australia's an interesting place as well because it's dealt, it has a kind of history of protocols in terms of the law isn't going to change for Indigenous people. There is no political will behind that. And as the debates in WIPO have kind of played out, there's a lot of talk about, what, about definition. What is Indigenous knowledge? How do we know what it is? How do we draw the borders? Therefore, how can we protect it? And these are legitimate questions. I mean, how do you create something to protect Indigenous knowledge? What is Indigenous knowledge? Is Indigenous knowledge Western, is, uh, different to Western knowledge or is this, there's this kind of intermeshing thing of knowledge that always occurs and how do you work with that? And as the intergovernmental committees in um, WIPO have demonstrated, you can talk a lot about what these definitional questions are and you can produce quite a lot of paperwork about what those definitional issues are. But the people in the communities that are there today still need some practical answers. So in developing, uh, and, and so one of the things that Australia has done, and it's kind of done it because the copyright cases in the 80s with Aboriginal art indicated a need to provide a space that recognised that Indigenous interests are sometimes different and that Indigenous interests cannot always be easily mapped onto standard notions of public and onto standard copyright spaces. It doesn't always work that way. 
And so what the protocols have done, and protocols are very interesting things because they, they're, they're not binding in any way, and yet they've been so effective in Australia, which is kind of curious, given that they do not rely on taking something to court. You kind of follow a protocol or you don't. That's pretty much the option. And if you do, you kind of tend to um, start behaving in different ways. And the kind of way in which protocols have changed the ways in which libraries and archives deal with Indigenous people has been quite a shift. And the first protocol that dealt with um, these substantial collections was in 1994 and 1995. And they were just about trying to recognise what these different interests might be, what Indigenous people might want um, in terms of how a library or archive does behave in relation to that material, so that perhaps a library does restrict something that is, has been previously opened because of it's, it's come to light that it's a very secret ceremony and it shouldn't be shown to everybody. But how libraries and archives deal with this in Australia differs as well, and that's the kind of capacity for protocols to work. There is no one-size-fits-all because the issues are usually very subject-specific within each given library or archive. And the way in which protocols work is to provide some tools of, of guidance, I guess, of, of ways in which you can behave that is ethical to Indigenous interests that are not recognised legally. So these protocols are in the process now of being rewritten and reread, and that's kind of timely, 10 years is a good time to kind of then rethink the next shift and how that might work. And my job at IATSIS is to create policy and best practice around these collections. And the stuff that I do work on is on the films and on the sound recordings and the photographs, because clearly that is the most important material that has the most immediacy within communities now. And whilst it might change to manuscripts over time, the reason why it is the, these other forms is because Indigenous people aren't reading the manuscripts. Usually there's three different languages that have to go through before you can start reading the manuscript and interpreting it. But the, the other forms have the immediacy. So in developing the, um, the best practice, and the, so on one level there's the cultural institution best practice and policy, and IATSIS is, is one of these organisations that other cultural institutions in Australia look to in terms of guiding. So we have that for the cultural institutions. For the communities, we have spe very specific protocols that guide researchers that come into the communities about how they should behave ethically and within the community, and almost creating um, agreements and fiduciary obligation in relation to that material. And how we did that in Galawinku is um, in two languages. One, one Yongu, which is the language of um, Galawinku, and the other is in English. And it took a very long time to translate copyright into Yongu and then to kind of have that understood as well. Um, and the term that is used, I mean, the enunciation is interesting. It's intellect, intellectual copyright. That's what everyone calls it. You go, no, no, intellectual property or copyright. And everyone goes, no, 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 intellectual copyright. <laughs> and, and so but the meaning that's been made around that term is significant because it is intellectual and it is copyright and they've kind of come together in Kalawinku. Um, so in terms of dealing both theoretically with some of these issues and what they mean, 
um, and that they can't be separated from politics and that they can't be separated from colonial projects of recording and documenting Indigenous people and that they can't be separated from historic, the historical spaces that archives and libraries have been. And the practical end of things where Indigenous people do want the material, they do want property ownership over it, they do make claims of ownership um, and how you kind of traverse these different spaces in terms of policy, in terms of practice and in terms of theory, that's, an, that's the Australian story. That's my story about what we've been doing. So that, thanks.